Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to The Exchange. I'm your host, Tom Daly. Very glad to be back after a bit of an extended holiday break, but just thrilled to be joined today by one of the great ancient history podcasters, Dominic Perry, who writes and produces the History of Egypt podcast. According to Herodotus, Egypt was the gift of the Nile. It can be counted among the first great empires and was a society centered around the Great River's annual flood cycle, for it was the great arbiter between feast and famine, between joy and sorrow, and was afforded the supernatural reverence, a thing whose cooperation was necessary to hold chaos and death in abeyance, deserved. With the river's bounty as its foundation, Egypt prospered and grew into one of the cornerstone civilizations of all human history. And Dominic Perry brings the dramatic story of the rise and fall of its gods and dynasties and fortunes to brilliant light by taking his listeners on a journey that lets them see this magnificent land through the eyes of the ancients. The history of Egypt is at once illuminating and entertaining, while also being eminently accessible and is sure to give any listener a better sense of this distant culture hailing from the dawn of humanity. So without further ado, here's my chat with Dominic Perry. Dominic Perry, welcome to The Exchange. Hello, hello, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. Going very good. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dominic. Uh, I know you're taking time out of your uh, your busy summer holiday. Absolutely, I'm just flat out right now. <laughs> awesome you deserve it hmm. yeah you know, so you have an amazing podcast about ancient egypt you know which is one of my favorites on the ancient world thank you well you're welcome but i don't want to start by talking about that oh no oh god are we <laughs> yeah. going off script already oh, we're going we're hey you oh, come, sorry. You... i'll keep the language clean oh please don't worry about it I have several explicit episodes jolly good um I've never talked to a New Zealander in person before, so uh, the first part of this interview is going to be about New Zealand. Okay, fine. Because I can't let this opportunity go. Sure. All right, so Kiwis. Mm. 
You're all okay with that? What do you mean? With birds? I have no (laughs) No. moral objection to the birds, no. (laughs) So New Zealanders go by the nickname Kiwis, and you're all okay with that? That's not offensive? No, absolutely. It's our national bird, so, you know, it's totally a-okay. And then we have kiwi fruits as well, so it's fine by us. Although Americans, you call kiwi fruit kiwis for some reason. You you drop the fruit part, which I guess makes sense, but... It sounds strange. We don't have the birds. Well, yeah, because we've got the birds, kiwis, and then we have kiwi fruit. So why would we talk about them as the same thing? But I guess to you guys, we're all just fruits rather than birds. I don't think you're a fruit, Dominic. Jolly good. <laughs> uh, so I actually wanted to talk a, a little bit about a kiwi uh, because mm-hmm. you recently, I guess it was about two years ago or so, there was a, a contest to adopt a new national flag. Yes, at the start of start of 2016, we had a referendum about it, in like a citizens' vote on the whole whole thing, as to whether we wanted to wanted to change the flag, get rid of the the old British design flag. I guess as part of the ongoing conversation about whether New Zealand should continue being a a British colony or move towards independence. And what did you guys end up doing? Uh, we chose to keep it. Everyone chose univer. Well, it was kind of it was kind of strange how they did it. First, they chose. They we had two referendums on the thing. First, we decided on the the design to go with. So there was a referendum. They gave us four designs that had won some overpriced competition, and then we chose the best one out of those from by public popular vote. And then it was put to a second referendum. You know, do we change to this new flag that's been designed or go for? The old one, just stick stick to what's new. And people chose to keep stick with what they knew. Oh, the old one. Well, that's interesting, because I had a, another kind of, uh, I guess, tangential question uh, about sort of colonial identity that mm-hmm. I guess this is going to kind of roll into. Um, and it's weird, because we just, you know, Christmas just passed at sure. the time that we're recording this. And obviously, uh, I'm in North America, and I have a very specific idea in mind of you know what um, Christmas looks like, and it's very Dickensian. Um, <laughs> yep. You know, it's snow, and you know, uh, we we do roast hams essentially here, and there's sure. like roast, um, uh, and there's uh, ugly sweaters and eggnog and all, all that stuff. Do you know? I've never tried eggnog. I've always been curious to try it, and I've never done it. What is eggnog? Eggnog is oh god, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's does anybody it's know? Defi- it is it definitely just something has like egg and cream in it. If if you really want to just get down to make your own eggnog, hmm. um, you know, I I probably buy the stuff from the stores because it's pasteurized and homogenized and you know not gonna have salmonella in it and stuff. But is it is it alcoholic? It can be if you want it to be. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, a little a little rum goes pretty pretty good, in it? It never goes keeps you warm. Never goes wrong. Yeah, my, it's funny because my father used to live in Washington D.C. for about oh, ten years, and like if I visit him, I visited him a couple of times over Christmas, and you know had the nice white Christmas, and yet I consistently failed to try eggnog, and I've always regretted not trying eggnog. It's the one thing from your country that I'm desperate to try. Well, Dominic, if you're ever here in Massachusetts where I am, I'll get you some eggnog. I would actually love to visit Massachusetts. I've heard it's beautiful. It's a wonderful state. Mm. Best state in the Union. <laughs> I'm sure every state says that. 
<laughs> but only one is right. But only one is true, of course, you know. Um, but you have celebrated a white Christmas because that's the core of my question is it's actually summer in New Zealand. Yes. And, you know, it, it got me thinking uh, about New Zealand being a a British colony and thinking about how the Second British Empire really liked to try to stamp its customs and almost uh, fetishize the way it was mm-hmm. done in England and imprint that onto the colonies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. So I imagine you guys in the summer all wearing sweaters, drinking eggnog, but apparently that's not right. No, we're wearing shorts and a lot of sunblock because we have a hole in the ozone layer over our country. So we burn like, I don't know, like chips. <laughs> um, it's it's very hot. It's very sunny. Everyone goes to the beach. We usually have picnics or barbecues outside. Um, everyone slathers on the sunscreen and jumps into the water. And thankfully, since we're not Australia, we can actually swim in the ocean without sharks or <laughs> jellyfish trying to kill us. Um, New Zealand is like the safe cousin of Australia. In Australia, everything is trying to kill you, but you know, in New Zealand, we're okay. Mm. Well, that's good. But how much besides that? Obviously, you you guys have adapted to to celebrate in a distinctive way. You know that makes sense with the climate you're in. But mm. how much does the British identity still define New Zealand because Australia and New Zealand both, to me, in my very Western, like American, um, you know, worldview, it, it seems like you're both almost European countries that have just been dropped in the wrong part of the world. Mm. Is that's, it like that, or that's a tough question, and I'm probably the wrong person to ask actually, because my mother was English, and my father spent his sort of formative years in England as well. So I was raised in the English tradition. Mm. And apparently, you know, foreigners say I don't sound like a, a normal Kiwi. I don't quite have the right accent and all that. So I was I grew up saturated in English culture and British comedy, that kind of thing. But I suppose on on the country wide level, it's if you had said if you had said that, you know, that we were a British city transplanted about twenty, thirty years ago, you would have been absolutely right, you know. The generation mm-hmm. just before me, my parents' generation, absolutely grew up in a sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant tradition. In the last, basically since the 1970s, though, the country, as a as a general rule, has made a lot of effort to break down that old stereotype and to start mm-hmm. and to, to start integrating the other cultural backgrounds of New Zealand as well. So basically putting a lot of effort into reviving the Maori language, the native language of the Maori people, and, you know, really bringing that back because it was in danger of dying out. Um, incorporating things like Maori festivals and traditions into the, into the calendar again. So now we celebrate, you know, Maori New Year, Tamariki, which is great. And also since we have an extremely large... Um, Asian immigrant population, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, and South African of all places, because we have an hmm. extremely large number of immigrants coming to New Zealand. And, you know, historically, since New Zealand is an island, everyone here is technically an immigrant. Um, mm. We have a very cosmopolitan society, especially in our larger cities. You know, it's very mixed, multiple races. So 
because of that, you know, different things are becoming very popular. Like Diwali is a huge festival in Auckland, and so is Chinese New Year, and they both, you know, draw huge crowds of people. So even though we have the the traditional Christmas sort of atmosphere, and you know, Christmas trees go up, which are pine trees, which are not native to New Zealand, I don't think. That was another question I'd had in my yeah, mind. We in do, the we picture do, that I had. We do have Christmas trees, and it's as anachronistic as you would imagine. And <laughs> what's even worse is that I have an aunt who lives in Stockholm, and she every year sends us some Swedish Christmas tree decorations. So in the middle of summer, we have this pine tree dying in the in the living room with Swedish decorations <laughs> on it, and yet we still eat ham. We still have a roast ham at Christmas as well. But then we also do things like smoked salmon as well. So I guess to answer your question in sort of the short ways, you know, we're we're trying to be less of a British transplant and embrace more of what makes New Zealand quite unusual in terms of its population and geography. That's amazing. That was an incredible answer. I'm very happy that uh, that I learned that. Mm. It's quite fun to watch. <laughs> so transitioning smoothly now to uh, the history of Egypt Naturally. podcast. Yep. Uh, you know, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background, um, you know, as a historian? I, obviously, you you have a master's degree in ancient history. Yes, um, which is a broad topic. But uh, what was it about Egypt that sort of caught your attention and uh, made you drill down into that enough to want to dedicate a podcast to it? Hmm. I'm surprised that I'm not prepared for that question. Um, well, I I caught the I caught the ancient Egypt bug when I was a child, when I was about seven or eight years old, which apparently is the best time to catch it. Um, if you catch it when you're old, it's very dangerous. It's like chickenpox. Um, <laughs> so I got it. I got it young because I had I had to do a school project on Tutankhamun or something like that, or I stumbled on a, a book of Tutankhamun's treasures in the school library, and this this whole strange civilization suddenly leapt out at me. You know, they had this weird art and these odd, unusual gods and language that made so little sense to basically anyone unless they're very well trained in it. And I don't know why. I mean, I guess in just in the, in the way of children, I just sort of kept learning and learning about it. You know, I kept... My parents were very indulgent. My mother was... My mother had a philosophy of, you know, I won't always buy you things like toys, but I will mostly happily buy you a book, which was a good philosophy, I think. So I wound Definitely. up just learning and absorbing all this information, and it sort of became a a habit or a frustrating addiction to the point that I guess I guess maybe I'm just a person who's naturally interested in history because even when I was a teenager and sort of going through my rebellious phase, I did briefly lose interest in ancient Egypt for about three years, but I just substituted it with ancient Rome. So <laughs> I was the worst worst rebel in history. I was just <laughs> basically a nerd's version of rebellion, which is, no, I'm not learning that. I'm going to learn something different. Um, but anyway, um, I wound up, I actually didn't start doing it at uni, at university. I chose to do filmmaking first. And I thought maybe that was what I really wanted to do was to make films. Because around that time, you know, the Lord of the Rings and things had just come out and New Zealand was starting to really embrace the idea of developing homegrown film filmmaking. And at the time, I thought that was what I wanted to do. 
But then after about a year of that, I realized it just wasn't as interesting to produce films as it was to watch them. And so right. I, I switched over to to doing ancient history as my major. And things just kind of snowballed from there. And when it came, when I finished my degree, I thought, oh, well, I don't want to go into the real world just yet. So I'll do, do a postgrad degree. And then I did that. And I thought, oh, I, I still don't want to go into the real world. So I better go do some excavating and then do a master's degree. And now here I am. <laughs> so the long and short of it is that we just kind of got ridiculously out of control. Well, let's jump to that. I want to jump on that. Um, so you said excavating. Now, you've actually worked on archaeological digs, right? Yes, in Egypt and Sudan. And what is that experience like? It's it's a mixed bag. It's quite interesting. It can be extremely lonely, oddly enough, because you're transplanted into the middle of a, a culture whose language you don't tend to speak, although you start picking it up. And you spend your day digging material from people who have been dead for thousands of years. And that's a curiously isolating concept. It's hard to explain. But you find yourself sort of digging up this digging up this stuff and thinking, you know, this is what my world is going to be like one day. You know, to them, their world was as important and lively as ours is. And yet now it's it's just dust and sand and relics. And if you're not prepared for it, which I definitely wasn't the first time, it can be a, a curiously sobering experience. Sort of, it can really bring you down for a, for a few days, and it did actually the first time I excavated. Um, and then you you sort of learn to put that aside, and the analytical part of your brain takes over, and you start. You start really think you you realize sort of you know the culture is gone, but if you do your work well, it can come back to life, and that's I think that's the trick to get into when you're doing archaeology, which it's not hard to get into. You know, you can even as an amateur, you digs are always happy to take people on as assistants. Um, I understand quite a lot of Native American archaeologists do that. They take take the interested public out to, to sites, you know, for a fee and um, bed and board and stuff. But once you get into that mindset of realizing that you're you're not necessarily excavating, but becoming a custodian of things from the past and helping an ancient culture to live again, then it becomes an extremely enlivening and rewarding experience, which seems odd considering how, you know, dust and bones it all really is. But I have to say, the one the one thing that I've always desperately wanted to do in archaeology, which I haven't had the pleasure or honor of doing yet, is I want to dig up a mummy, and I haven't. And it's on my bucket list, ironically, but I haven't got there yet. So, yeah, it's a curious experience, and I actually recommend anyone who, you know, has maybe a month or two free time, you know, say you're retiring or have a holiday... Look around if there's an archaeological dig in your vicinity or in a country you've been interested in and get in touch with whoever runs the excavation and see if you can actually join up with it because there are a lot of opportunities out there for interested amateurs and universities, museums, archaeological teams are always looking for help or funding or assistance of any kind. So it's it's definitely worth checking out if you can. Well, it's... it's... 
and this is not a digression into modern geopolitics or anything like that, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it seems that a lot of these really valuable historical artifacts that, that can be excavated, you know, tend to have a habit of, uh, you know, laying in territories controlled by generally unstable, brutal, or controversial regi- regimes. I mean, as someone like yourself, who's obviously very respectful of these antiquities, uh, I think it's fair to say that the 21st century hasn't been particularly kind to them. Um, going back to the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan yep. in Afghanistan, uh, the, the looting of the National Museum mm-hmm. uh, of Iraq during the American invasion in 2003, yep. Yep. and uh, I think most recently the, the damage done to Palmyra by, by ISIS. Yes. Uh, now, you uh, you've worked in Sudan. You said, mm-hmm. which has swung between uh, you know, turmoil, civil war, and genocide uh, for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And your other place was Egypt, that has you know been unstable in recent years. You know, going between a longtime military uh, strongman ruler sure. uh, Mubarak, uh, who was replaced by the democratically elected Islamist Morsi, who was then overthrown and replaced by the new military <laughs> dictator Sisi. Yes, yeah, uh, so it's, it's and, been a revolving door, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, so you do you feel and this is a, a two-part question, like did you feel safe while you were there? And Absolutely. You totally. did? Okay, that, that's mm. great. And, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly when you were there, but, you know, going forward, are, are you confident in Egypt's ability to continue to protect you know these precious ancient sites well in the first half i think you'd be surprised at how considerate and protective the locals are of foreign people coming in especially in egypt and sudan which are countries that particularly rely on tourism of those ancient civilizations to help drive them the the locals love visitors and, you know, everyone gets annoyed by tourists, but they really love it that you're coming to their country, that you're not being taken in by the hype that, you know, some the mainstream media might give across, which is that it's a terrorism-ridden country, which simply is only true for certain tiny parts of the countries. So I would say that I felt totally safe and protected by the locals and by just the general situation. Um in terms of their ability to protect the relics, um, it's a very tricky question. I know that Egypt is desperate desperate to protect them and to make it safe for tourists again because tourism is down something like 80 to 90% since the revolution in 2011, and it's still only just creeping, creeping back upwards slowly. And that has hit the economy very hard. A lot of people relied on it. There's like small businesses dedicated to supplying tourists with whatever they needed. So the Egyptian it's a it's basically one of the Egyptian government's top priorities is to bring tourism back. Now as for their ability, you know, I'm not a I'm not a geopolitics expert. I don't under, understand Nor a security expert, I'm sure. No, yeah. no. I have I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to look for for the markers of whether a country's capable as opposed to just interested. Their will is strong. The will is definitely strong. Um, I would I would think they're definitely capable of protecting tourists and capable of protecting sites. The trick is, I suppose, 
to give off enough of an an image that people start coming back because once people start coming back the money starts coming back into the economy and that sort of enhances their ability to protect and once they can protect more more tourists come back and the whole thing snowballs until it reaches its you know a good happy plateau again so fingers crossed for that yes i think i think the future is is optimistic you know i don't think egypt is going to be losing that particular battle the real the real thing to watch out for would be whether there's another political collapse if that happens you know all cards are on the table again right. and a lot depends on what's actually happening in syria because that has massive ripple effects throughout the rest of the region i i think the egyptians can do it they can do it very good <clears throat> now your narrative dominic mm. is consistently well, I mean, you're very humble. I think it's one of the most beautifully composed, uh, evocative examples of nonfiction storytelling and podcasting. Well, thank um, you. I mean, I, I, I don't heap praise that lightly. Um, you know, there are a few other podcasts that I think have similar gifts. I think Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium is one of them. Yes, I'm a um, big fan of that one. I really like I it. See. Yeah, uh, well, I think you are almost in lockstep in, in terms of uh, ability. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, your descriptions, I find, just so vibrant and lend themselves so well to visualization. You know, I, I sort of feel like recently you've reached almost a new level in North by Northwest, um, where I f you described rivers rushing to the sea, and I felt like I could see the blue sea surrounding Crete mm. um, and just kind of the looming weight of Knossos and... Uh, it was just truly impressive. Oh, thank goodness. Because that, that was a horrendously difficult episode to write. It took me a lot of writing and rewriting to before I got the final product out on that one. Oh, it, it was great. Do you have a background in creative writing? Uh, no, just a passion. Um, I read voraciously. You know, I've, I've got way more books than I should or any reasonable person should. I've always, ever since I was young, been interested in reading and writing. But no, I don't have any formal training in it, so I've just learned as I went. 
You like reading and writing. Do you also like uh, the HBO drama Rome? Oh, I, I, I love Rome for what it tried to be. I am not necessarily a huge fan of what Rome actually achieved, if that makes sense. Um, the the first the first season of Rome I think is beautiful. It's wonderfully told. It's very detailed. It's really engaging and funny and evocative. But it all sort of fell apart in the second season. I don't know what happened. I guess it was because they knew they were only getting that second season, and they had to cram far too much into it, to the extent that episodes jumped, you know, five years at a time between episodes, and you had no idea it was happening. So suddenly things were yeah. just changing. Essentially, they decided they wanted to do Game of Thrones, and that's where that money went. Yes, I understand. Although, I I did read up, you know, an interview with the producer from HBO, who at the time the head of HBO, and even he said, you know, once we once we cancelled it, we actually sort of regretted the decision and thought maybe we should have kept it going. But I guess it was just it was too ambitious at the time. It was it was ahead of its ahead of the game in terms of what it was going to pull off, and it really took Game of Thrones to make those kind of shows marketable again yeah i do love rome but i i'll always wonder what could have been you know gotcha um i wanted to use it as a, a jumping off point um so obviously you mentioned how how well the first season was done and that's really when the show went to egypt yes um you might re- remember two of uh, caesar's soldiers uh, are talking in the desert and one is saying to the other that he's a fool because he's mocking Egypt and its current uh, dilapidated state. <laughs> and it had been great long before Rome. And I think it was very telling, you know, this sense that even to ancient people, or people who we would think are ancient, Egypt itself was ancient. Mm. Was that, yeah. Is that a true impression? It does seem to be from what we... What survives in the ancient writings, you know, Herodotus heaps praise upon Egypt and says that much of the pre-Socratic ideas and philosophies and religious ideas in Greece came from Egyptian roots, and um, Greek and Roman writers were fascinated by the people and land of the Nile Valley and wrote about it extensively. And then, of course, they eventually settled it in there, there and seemed to have built thriving, happy communities. There are Greek towns in Egypt that were Greco-Egyptian hybrids. And, yeah, they seem to have... I'm not... I, I couldn't even explain what it is, but there's just... They definitely saw something in Egypt that they couldn't find elsewhere in the Mediterranean world, and they seem to have very much appreciated it. By the same token, they thought, you know, Egyptians as a people were weird and a bit effeminate and a bit strange and um, not necessarily the best influence on Rome or Greece. There were definitely sort of backlashes against those ideas, but by and large, they seem to have been utterly fascinated. The Romans were great lovers of antiquity and tradition, you know. They They loved cultures that were older than themselves, and they really respected ones that had survived and endured. Like, they had great respect for the Jewish people for their antiquity and for the Greeks for their accomplishments and naturally the egyptians fell into that they thought well these people have built a very long-standing civilization and culture they must be doing something right and we should respect that how was it that egypt was able to be so preeminent for so long i mean it, it survived the collapse of the bronze age that took out so many of its contemporaries 
But then it went on even so much longer past that. Well, I think there are, there's there's two layers of answers to that question. One was that Egypt is beautifully isolated geographically. It has the wonderful Sinai Peninsula and Eastern Desert protecting the Nile Valley from the east, and it has the whole Sahara protecting it from the west. So really, there's only two two ways to come into the country from the Mediterranean or, or Near East, and both of those were close together, so it was relatively easy to defend them. So as long as their enemies were on the same level as them technologically, the Egyptians were able to defeat foreigners and overcome them. As soon as the technological game changed, as soon as iron became the new standard of weaponry, and as soon as the Assyrians really perfected siege warfare, that's sort of when the Egyptians lost their, their stable footing. The first, or one of the first peoples to conquer Egypt were the Assyrians, and it's pretty obvious that part of the trick that they had there was that they just they smashed through walls with battering rams with impunity, and nobody had seen the like of it. The Assyrians perfected the battering ram first, and no one had experienced that before and that just gave them an inexorable advantage so i would say that the, the reason the egyptians were able to resist outside influence for so long is because they were in an ideal geographic position to to resist as long as the technological game was pretty equal in terms of internally um i think their longevity was a mixture of sort of blood sweat and tears i mean they as much as they seem like a continuous sort of um, unchanging civilization, that's actually not true at all. There's a there's a hell of a lot of change in the internal structures of Egyptian culture and society, and they really struggled through these processes with great difficulty. Sometimes there were civil wars and great conflicts, and sometimes things re went relatively smoothly, but they were constantly changing and evolving new ideas and new ways of approaching what they took to be a normal way of life hmm. and what was the point you know in your mind if there was a point um you know that was really the end of ancient egypt uh what you know was it when rome made it a province was it before that in my mind the end point is the day sometime i, I don't actually know the exact date it's in the 300s i think or maybe the late 200s it's the time when the last hieroglyphic inscription was carved on the walls of the Temple of Philae, which is south of Aswan, modern-day Luxor, and Aswan. Um, when the last hieroglyphic inscription was carved with a religious text, then I think that's the moment when the culture as we know it sort of ended. And before that, there had been... There have been changes and things, but the the one thing that really was consistent was this language, this uniform language, which evolved slowly, but was still roughly the same, the same political and cultural language. I think once that goes, then you're really into a new phase of Egyptian history, and you could argue that Christ Christianity changes the game a lot once the Eastern Roman Empire really starts to crack down on those old polytheistic cults that again helps sort of break the break the cultural uh longevity and through line so once the once the temples are closed it's it's sort of another another breaking point in terms of autonomy though i don't really worry too much about the political thing i think it's the cultural longevity that mm -hmm. really matters with egypt because 
there are there are massive political breaks in Egyptian history of you know centuries at a time where there's no no political unity, but there's always that cultural cultural unity. So once that goes, that's when I mark the end. Gotcha. And I think that uh, that kind of feeds into one of uh, another one of my uh, favored aspects of your podcast, uh, which is your affinity for sharing rather extended translations or stories uh, that were written or told by the Egyptians themselves. Um, I could think of a couple episodes. Uh, I think the shipwrecked sailor. Mm. Uh, you read the the teachings of Amenemhat. Um, uh, obviously the amazing, uh, battle of Megiddo that, uh, so many of the, your Agora mates appeared on. Yes. It turned out, um, turned out very well that one. That did, that turned out really well. Um, but you know, I think it really gives listeners access to the Egyptian voice and mm. it allows them to hear, you know, their justifications and their explanations. Mm. Is that something you're consciously trying to do when you incorporate these that yes that was from the get-go that was part of the agenda of the podcast was that i was going to include as many stories stealers biographies little little texts decrees and letters as i could because otherwise it's just a guy from new zealand describing a culture to a person from the United States of the UK. As soon as you start putting in the translations of whatever, then you start connecting with their ancient voice. I mean, obviously, if I was really committed, I'd be doing it all in ancient Egyptian itself. But then that would kind of, kind of break the break the small audience for that. I think so. So I think, yeah, from the from day one, it was utterly crucial to the podcast that they have those texts as much as possible, and you know, often. Some of the hardest episodes to write are the ones where I don't have those because they actually almost tell the story for me. I, I build my episodes around the text that I'm putting in. And if mm -hmm. I don't, if I have to talk about a topic that doesn't have a great many texts surviving about it, it makes my job a lot harder. Now, how is it that we seem to know so much about ancient Egypt. Uh, I know we have a lot of hieroglyphs, uh, you know, on monuments, and we've we've found a lot through archaeology. But we know so much about them, but yet it still seems that the Westerner wants to make Greece and Rome so much more uh, a part of our history. Is there some sort of disconnect there that would explain that? Hmm. I haven't really, went, haven't really thought about that before. That's an interesting question. Um, well, I mean, I guess it's... We're, in many ways, we in 2016 are still saddled with the baggage of 1816. We're, we live in a, a culture that is utterly defined by people who lived to 250 years ago. And I guess as an American, you're very familiar with that sort of time period and the influence it has today, even on society. And it's really because around the late 18th century, European scholars were so fascinated by Greece and Rome that those cultures became the touchstones for um, institutions in the West. And I would say the big part of that probably is because people in the late 1700s could read and write ancient Greek and Latin. 
educated men could learn them. It wasn't until the mid-1800s, approximately, that people could start to learn ancient Egyptian. Basically, we have a we have a linguistic through line through medieval society with Greece and Latin, which we didn't have with ancient mm-hmm. Egyptian. And so no one had access to the ancient Egyptian writings. They were just strange pictograms on the walls of half-buried temples. And I think that's really what made it easy for the Enlightenment scholars to to seize on Greece and Rome is that they could actually get inside the heads of, you know, Cicero, Aristotle, Caesar, these kind of people, which they couldn't do with Amenemhat or Amenope or Tutmos the Third. So that's that's probably why. It it that's an interesting phrase you use to get in the head of Cicero or someone like that. Because I as guess much I as it's possible. To, right. Is it a cultural thing where I feel like I'm able to get into the head of Cicero more than you know, a man in hot or, you know, I find the same thing when I look at Egyptian pharaohs as I often do when I look at, say, a Chinese emperor. Uh, I feel like they're often depicted in the historic record as sort of a two-dimensional character where I, I feel like you get a lot of really well-rounded three-dimensional stories uh, of almost things that are more relatable coming out of Greece and Rome. Um, Is that strictly cultural, you think, or does it have more to do with the sources? Um, I think it's a product of your cultural background and education. Um, Not personally, specifically. Obviously, I'm not taking a dig. I mean, in the sense that... That was was quite personal. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, in the sense that it's... We're we're taught in some ways that the Greeks and Romans were like us, only slightly less knowledgeable about certain things. We're not often taught that the Egyptians or Chinese or Indians were like us, except for some conceptual differences. There's there is still a lingering idea that everything east of the Mediterranean, east of Greece, basically, is a different world. And that's partly the gift to us of the ancient Greeks, ironically. The Greeks treated everything east of Anatolia as a bizarre bizarre world of great antiquity, but also great foreignness and strangeness. And I think that's just simply been handed down to us. And unfortunately, people haven't, not necessarily questioned enough, plenty of people have questioned it, but not enough work has been done to to undo that idea and to understand those people in our terms or their own terms. Um, definitely some of, there are some, there are some problems with the evidence. So in ancient Egypt, we're not so fortunate to have biographies of as many people or leaders as we do from ancient Rome. You know, we don't have a Plutarch for ancient Egypt. No one sat down and wrote the 12 pharaohs. But what we have should theoretically be enough to give people the sense that those people were just like us. And that is something I try to stress in the podcast. You know, there are, you look at a biography from ancient, ancient Egypt and they're concerned with the same things. You know, make sure the fields are planted on time and um, make sure that my daughter marries, well, doesn't marry that man. I don't like him. He's not. He's not appropriate. <laughs> Granted, they're, they're antiquated ideas. You know, we wouldn't consider them particularly moral or appropriate today. But they're still right. very much human concerns. They're very basic ideas 
that are innate to the human experience. I don't think there's much difference. I guess I guess one of the things that puts people off in terms of digging into it is the fact that the Egyptians loved references. They were, especially educated Egyptians, were very big on making oblique sort of references to gods or stories. And once that cultural background disappears, then it's hard to make sense of them. Whereas we still have, you know, the Iliad. So if some if a Greek writer makes a reference to the Iliad, then we can say, ah, well, I know exactly what he's talking about. It's harder to do that with ancient Egypt. So yeah, the evidence affects it True. somewhat. But I think I think there's probably more than enough there that with with time and dissemination, people will come to see that, you know, the ancient Egyptians were different to us only in cosmetic ways. Okay. And I think I have one more question for you that's sort of in two parts. Now, first is, what does ancient Egypt, in your opinion, mean to modern Egypt? Not on an economic level, but on a a cultural, uh, internal level. Hmm. If you know. I don't know if if I'm qualified to answer that. I haven't, I haven't asked that question of any native Egyptian. You know, what does ancient Egypt mean to you? I know that, like our own culture, there are plenty in Egypt who feel a great sense of sense of responsibility towards that heritage, and they're very proud of it. But then there are also people who seem to feel a bit suffocated by it, and you know, think we shouldn't be held back by these, this past. And then there's there's the the sort of complicating factor of the very distinct cultural break with the Arab conquest and the coming of Islam. You know, that fundamentally changes a lot of the the sort of things overlying the, the culture. The average the average Egyptian is not much different today than they were five thousand years ago, but they speak a different language, they worship a different god, and they have a different set of cultural references to touch on. And that complicates how they interact with it. But I I don't know if I can I can really say what it means to them on a spiritual, emotional level. I think some people love it, some people hate it, and a great many people are just sort of disinterested in it. It's it's an especially hard question to answer coming from an outside country because I go to Egypt mm-hmm. and I think I am hyper aware of every ancient monument that's around. I am my brain just notices every little speck and picks up and thinks, oh, this is fantastic. And I do the same thing with, you know, the medieval Islamic material, buildings and material. I think, oh, that's that's a 15th century building from this this period of the of the caliphate, and I think that's fantastic. But if you live there and you walk past it every day, it sort of fades into your background, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I, I lived in Boston for years, and I mean as far as American cities go. Mm. Um, that one's just about as old as you can get, yep. you know, like 1632 yep. or so. And, uh, you know, it's still got some things, definitely paved over other things. But I, I understand the, the spirit of that statement. Um, and I guess finally, maybe this one would be uh, something you could speak to more, you know, on a personal level. What should the modern world be thanking Egypt for that we don't even realize. Hmm. I think I think in an ideal world what the modern human or people would take away from Egypt is 
a sense of a sense of universality if that makes sense i feel connecting with egypt is one of those things that has the potential to make you realize just how connected the human race really is to itself and how different cultures and civilizations different nations and backgrounds those are really just dressing that we're all humans we all share the planet and we all interact with it in roughly the same way and i think when you when you get into the mindset of ancient egypt perhaps this is unique to ancient egypt but it's certainly um noticeable when you start to connect with those ancient voices you really start to feel that you are part of something greater than your own nation or community and that's a very liberating experience it makes you makes you realize that some things are more universal than you'd than you'd thought of and you know it's all you have to do, all you have to do is read a, a love poem from an ancient egyptian who's complaining that the object of his affections doesn't seem to notice he exists and you think wow just things haven't changed a bit like he's having trouble with girls and I'm having trouble with girls. Fantastic. This is great. <laughs> um to put it that's that's my sort of glib version. I think yeah, I think if that would be the big thing to take away is that the ancient Egyptians are as human and as lively as you or I. And the more people engage with that, the more they'll realize that all humans are like that. And if the world as a general rule internalized that, really took it to heart then it would be a fantastic thing, I think. That's wonderful, Dominic. Well, thank you so much for coming by and talking with me today. And I'm sure the listeners uh, have been given a lot of food for thought. And um, are are there any plugs that you'd like to give um, to let people find you if they don't already listen? Well, you can find us at EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com. Um, we're also on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Egyptian Podcast. Our Twitter handle is Egyptian Podcast. I didn't used to be very active with Twitter, but I'm getting better at it. Um, yeah, I'm pretty, we're pretty active on online. And I mean, obviously, we're on holiday until February, but there'll be new episodes coming up in the first week of February. And yeah, I hope we'll have some more people joining in on the the narrative of Egypt. Yeah. So thank you very much for having me. It's been a great opportunity and really enjoyable chat. That goes both ways. Jolly good. All right, Dominic. Enjoy your eggnog and your winter. <laughs> and you enjoy the beach. I will. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Ciao. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 